So the first covenant was what? No, it was the law, right? Okay, did it have fault? Did the law covenant have fault? Yes. Yes, and why would it have fault? Because it's dependent on the person to follow that law. I don't know, the dependency is... It was impossible. Yeah. Yes. Why was it impossible, Sarah? You're on the right track. It's just, uh, too hard for the people. Yeah. Okay, so if God tells you, you have to keep my law, you have to keep it strict, um, and, and if, if you in any way don't keep the law or break the law, then you have hell to pay. How many of us would make it to heaven? <laughs> All right, it's flawed. It's flawed, right? The Bible specifically teaches us that the, that the Old Testament and the law was a schoolmaster to teach us one thing. A schoolmaster mean, meaning just a teacher to teach us one thing, and that is that you're not good enough. Okay? Um, so God gave the law and he said, you need to keep my commandments and, and, and I require them, right? So even when Jesus came in Matthew chapter seven, he says, I didn't come to, uh, to, to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. See, Jesus did what we were unable to do because how many times did Jesus sin? He never sinned, right? And so he did in fact do the impossible for us. He kept that Old Testament covenant and fulfilled that Old Testament covenant so now he can say, I'm going to offer my life to you because your life is not good enough. Okay? So that's what it means when it says, for if that first covenant had been flawless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So if keeping the law was the way to do it. Now, here, here's where people get messed up sometimes, and especially when you talk about eternal security. You guys heard that term? Uh, when you talk about, uh, there are some people that say, well, you need to receive Jesus and then you need to do your part. Has anybody ever heard that? Okay, you'll hear that a lot. Um, very few denominations, and I know we don't like the word denominations. The reason why we don't like the word denominations is because we feel like it separates the body of Christ. What people don't understand about denominations is that they're there because people believe different things. And so if you did understand some of the things that other denominations believe, you'd be like, oh, that's not me, right? Um, just because the word of God doesn't say that. So I understand that we all wanna to come together, but we all need to rally around the word of God. What does God say? And if we went with that, everything would be fine. That's not necessarily what you have. So you have people out there that say, yes, you need to receive Jesus. That'll be your starting point, but then you have to keep the law that would be Seventh-day Adventist if you want to know, you know, who I'm talking about, right? They would want you, you, you wouldn't be, you'd have to go back into the Old Testament. You wouldn't be able to eat certain foods. You'd have to worship on a certain day. You'd have to, you, you know what I mean? And, and so in the New Testament though, because Jesus is our Sabbath, Jesus has fulfilled all those kind of things. We don't have to keep the law. Now Romans chapter six says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein, right? So if in fact we have been saved by grace and we are eternally secure through the blood of Jesus, why in the world would we want to live in our old sin? Okay, so he says, verse seven again, for if that, if that first covenant had been flawless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of, Ju of Judah, 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Let's stop for a minute. Where is that? When did God say that? Exodus. Right? Good, right? And, and when was that time? Like, tell me the, the context, the history. So they'd spent 400 years in Egypt as slaves, right? Uh, through that slavery, they actually grew into a really mighty nation. Uh, I can't remember the figure. I want to say 2 million by the time that they left uh, and coming out of Israel, I mean, coming out of Egypt, right? So now they're this huge nation. God brings them. He, he meets with Moses um, on Mount Sinai. And he says, the proof that you're going to know that I told you the truth is you will worship me again here at Mount Sinai, right? So they go back to Mount Sinai and this is where God gives them the Ten Commandments and lays that out before them, okay? So that's what he's talking about here. Um, But he says um, in verse number eight there, he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, uh, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So he says, instead of it being an external law that they have to keep, I'm going to put it on the inside, right? So now, now you're going to have a covenant that's, that's based on the inside, not on the outside. It's the difference between a physical covenant and a spiritual covenant, okay? So we have also been blessed with that spiritual covenant, not to take the place of Israel, and I want to make that distinction because I'm going to talk about that's where dispensations comes in. Not to take the place of Israel, but because of the blessing or the rejection of Israel, we now have that blessing as well. The Bible specifically tells us in Romans, I'm throwing a lot of information at you guys, I can feel it as I'm saying it. The Bible tells us in Romans, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, lay out the future of Israel. It says, God is not done with his people. Okay? But nevertheless, we bring them to jealousy because we have the relationship that they're supposed to have. The, this relationship of being on the inside is supposed to be for them. This new covenant was for them, but they rejected it. You following? And so through that rejection, God then opens it up to the world. And so now the Gentiles who did not know God, who did not have his precepts, right? Who did not have his laws and ordinances. If anybody should have got the Messiah and all those kinds of things, it should have been Israel, but they missed it, okay? And now we have it, okay? And what God's trying to do is to to provoke them to jealousy to say, that's what you're supposed to have, okay? Now, I want you to see that with me here. Let's, yeah. Because this is, written to the Hebrew people, obviously the Jewish people, right? Then yes. he doesn't mention in this, when he talks about the new covenant, he doesn't mention the Gentiles here. Is that because he was really ready to reveal that at this moment? I mean, it's, it does, it's definitely, in, you know, when he talks about the new covenant, he's talking to uh, his people or the house of Judah, he says. In the, in the okay, so we got to go on. Right. Because he does mention it. Okay. Right, let's go on a little farther. Verse 13. 
He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Okay? And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. So when this writing of Hebrews happened, he said, we are right in the midst of the transition where we are passing completely from the old to the new. Okay? There was a 40-year period from the time that Jesus ascended to the time that, it, that, that the temple, and I'm going to explain the temple to you guys next week, um, the different temples, but that the, the temple of Herod that was there in Jesus' day, it was 40 years that the temple was still there until in 70 AD when it was destroyed by the Romans. Okay? Which, was a, which is a symbol that that transition period had ended. So you had a 40-year transition where people were still doing the law. They were still bringing sacrifices to the temple. You even read sometimes where Paul was bringing some of those sacrifices uh, to the temple, not necessarily for salvation, but just because it was a part of the law. Right? Um, so him bringing a sacrifice wasn't a sin, uh, but it would have been offensive to the very people that he's trying to win if he were not bringing those kinds of sacrifices or going to the temple. Does that make sense? So um, he was just thinking a little higher than that. But look at verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and earthly place of, uh, of holiness. That would be the temple, right? For a tent was prepared. Uh, the, the first section in which was the lampstand. And so then he goes through uh, what that temple looked like, right? Um, you go down a little farther. And he says in verse number 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing uh, an eternal redemption. Okay, so what's being described here is he says, so you had this old covenant. Every year they had to bring these sacrifices. Every year they had to make an atonement for the people of Israel, right? So he says, if that sacrifice of, of the bulls and goats, and this gets into chapter 10, but if it had been good enough, there'd been no need to come year after year to make those sacrifices. But it was just a picture. It's just a type. And remember what we talked about before, that God always uses types and pictures, just like he does with children. Right? Just like we do with children. He uses types and pictures to get us to understand what's coming. Okay? So the sacrifice, it's like, okay, let me give you one. It's really interesting. When they would make this atonement, there had to be a lamb and a goat. And one was called a scapegoat. You guys ever heard this? Okay, so what they would do is they would take the lamb, just like they were, just like we were told to do in Exodus chapter 12. They would take that lamb once a year. Um, and for 14 days, they would do whatever they were supposed to do with it, and then they would kill that lamb. Then they would take the blood of that lamb and, and their hands and put it on the, the head of the scapegoat, and, and it was supposed to be a transference of all of the sin of Israel onto this scapegoat, and then they would send the goat away from the children of Israel, and it would go off, and you know they would never see it again. And, uh, and that was their atonement. Why the two... Why, why the two sacrifices or why the two animals? In case one doesn't work. No, no, one of them was yeah. the scapegoat. The other one had to be the sacrifice, right? Right. One was the sacrifice. One was the scapegoat. But if you're thinking about pictures and types, oh, 
Not necessarily. What did Jesus do for us? He died on the cross. That would be the lamb. But then what happened? But then what happened? Three days later, he rose again. Okay, well, how are you going to picture that if you kill a lamb? Right? So what God did is he said, I want you to take two of them. One of them is going to be sacrificed. One of them is going to die. The other one's going to live and take your sin away. Come on. You see, you see what I'm saying? You see the pictures that God... And, and a lot of times, man, that, and, and these are the kinds of things that when you guys start reading your Bibles, that's what I, I just got goosebumps. That's what I want you to see. I want you to see that God from the very beginning has saying, let me tell you how I'm going to do this. Somebody has to die. If you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. But there's a work of redemption that I'm going to do. So there's going to be a lamb of God, but there's also a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're both a picture of Jesus. Okay, I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter 22. See, I get all excited at this stuff, right? Turn over to Genesis chapter 22. If you've got a heading on your Bible, it'll say, it'll say the, the sacrifice of Isaac. You guys see that? This is the sacrifice of Abraham? It said Abraham Abraham's tested. Yeah, Abraham's tested, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Abraham had a son. It was the promised son, right? First he had Ishmael. Ishmael was from Hagar, not from Sarah, right? God told Sarah, I will give you a son. Okay, Sarah said, well, I can't have children. We'll try Hagar, my servant. God says, no, that's not what I want. I'm going to give you a son, right? So they have a promised son, Isaac. Now, here's, check the story out. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of, of Moriah. Now, here, here's an interesting thing. When you go to the land of Moriah, it's the same mountain range in which Golgotha is on. Golgotha is what? That's where Jesus was crucified. You've got to keep that in your mind. Okay? I'm just telling you, geographically, if you were to look at these two places on the map, it's the same mountain range. It's the same place. Okay? Um, Golgotha, which is in Jerusalem. Right? Um, and of course, in, in Abraham's day, it was called Mount Moriah. So he says, And offer him there as a burnt offering on, the one, uh, uh, on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Notice there's no discussion. He just follows after the Lord. Okay? So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place in which God had told him. On the third day, you see that key? All right. These are kind of, these kinds of things, like this is where you start, you start marking your Bible. Okay? Um, what's the third day? It, it's always about, and this is what we'll learn in numerology, but the, that number three is, is always either about Trinity or about resurrection. Okay, so he says, he says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to the the young men or his young men, stay here with the donkey and I 
and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took, and he took in his hand the, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to, to, the, uh, to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So Isaac, he's not dumb. I see the wood. But if we're going to sacrifice something, it's just me and you, Dad. So, you know, what's up, right? Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. It says, and when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in, in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Can you imagine can you imagine? If you have children, you cannot imagine. I can't. But here Isaac is bound. Now you gotta you gotta believe Isaac being I mean Abraham being as old as he was, surely he could have fought against that. He could have you, you know done something, but he was submissive to his father. He did what his father said, he let him bind him and put him on the altar. And it goes on and it says, um, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Now, when you read this in the Greek, what you find is that he, he raised the knife and he's on the way down. And the Bible, the Bible says in the King James that his hand was stayed. What that means is, is that with all the strength that a father would muster as he's trying to come down on his son to kill him, that something stayed his hand. And would not let him do that. Okay? Which I think is a little bit better picture to understand like he was doing it. Like he wasn't still in the deciding stage. All decisions were made. He's killing his son. Why? Because that's what God instructed him to do. Which son? His only son. The begotten son. Right? So he goes on, he says, verse number nine, going down, verse number 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham, check this out, catch this. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So you've got Isaac and the father. Isaac is a picture of Jesus Christ, the promised seed. Okay? So you have a picture of the son, Jesus, that goes up with his father on the mountain, on the same mountain that Jesus is going to be crucified on. And... He's going to be sacrificed there. But how do you illustrate, how's God going to illustrate that Jesus is alive today? How's he going to illustrate that even in the midst of the death, that there's a resurrection? Well, there has to be another animal. So he provided the ram caught in the thicket. They sacrifice, something has to die. And then Isaac and his father walk back down that mountain again. Again, a picture of the death, burial, resurrection 
You got to have life after death, right? So over and over again, you're going to see those types. So I, I want to just show you this too, because um, you need to you, you need to see that God sometimes gives us little background information about this stuff, and Hebrews is a good place to see this. But flip back over to Hebrews again, and look at the chapter of faith. Does anybody know what chapter that is? Uh, Hebrews chapter eleven. And it talks here about when he was tested in verse number 17. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 17. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in, was in the fact of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring Uh, be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the reason why Abraham was so quick to say yes is because number one, Isaac should never have been there in the first place. He was a miracle to begin with. But Abraham's faith was so sure that he believed that if he killed his son, Because God had promised that Isaac was going to be the the chosen seed, that he had the power to raise him from the dead. That's some pretty heavy faith, you know? So it wasn't, for him, it wasn't just about the moment of killing his son. It was about the power that God would have to, in fact, raise him from the dead if necessary. I mean, you look at what he told his son when his son started kind of figuring out what was going on. He said, God will provide the lamb. So even at that at that point, I mean, he, you you know he knew because he wasn't gonna lie about it. I don't think he would have lied just to you know hush his son. He told he knew that God was gonna provide. What, but also, yeah. if you look further in further before he even talked to his son, he told his servants, "Stay here for me, and the boy will return." Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the precepts of Abraham's mind, he was already trusting in God before he even got on top of the mountain, and that's what Hebrews eleven says. In the chapter itself, it's saying that Abraham had faith in God even before they even got to the mountain. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, exactly. I'm going to that kind of faith. <laughs> 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 yeah. And, that, and you know, the, the thing is, is that's exactly what we're supposed to strive for. You know, if you look at, at the end of verse number 10, or chapter 10, the last two verses of chapter 10, he says... He says in verse 37, for yet a little while and then coming and then the, the, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous, uh, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul um, ha- has no pleasure in him. We're to live by faith. That, that's the whole thing. And so then he takes the whole rest of that chapter 11 to say, let me give you some examples all throughout the Bible of how the children of God have always lived by faith. You know, whenever Kim and I were at the beach and we were getting this vision from the Lord of Reliant, uh, that's one of the things that we said is that we want this thing to be based on faith. We want people to live by faith. So I said, I don't want to call it Faith Church. What are we going to call it? So we came up with the name Reliant because it means we're going to rely on the Lord. And it's just another word for faith. Right? 
The just shall live by faith. So, um, go back to Hebrews chapter 3. Because we're talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, right? Hebrews chapter 3. And um, trying to decide how much of this I want to read. I tell you what, um, that's going to get us off track. Why don't we go to Hebrews chapter six? Okay, what's the first rule of Bible study? Context, Context right? Um, chapter 6. Okay, so who's this book written to? Hebrews. It's written to the Hebrews, right? Notice verse number 11 of chapter 5. Look at chapter 5. Verse number 11 says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now the children of Israel have been walking with the Lord now for centuries. You, you know what I mean? Literally thousands of years they have had the Lord speaking into their lives, into their ears. They've got the, the Old Testament law. They've got the, the Old Testament, which was their Jewish Bible, right? They had all of that, right? He says, but you become dull of hearing. For, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now, the other thing that you've got to understand is that the rest of the world was not getting this information from the Lord. So all of the, the laws about the unclean animals and, you know, the, the, like when you think about the unclean birds, the reason why God told them not to eat unclean animals and an unclean animal was basically anything that was a beast of the field or a bird of prey because they were going to eat blood. Well, that's where rabies would come from and different things like that. So what was happening is that God was sparing them from some of the diseases and some of the different things that the rest of the world was dealing with. They didn't know any better, right? But God was blessing them in ways that he had not blessed other nations. And that's just one example, right? But even, even about how to live and how to take care of your family and what to do in certain circumstances and the whole book of Leviticus and how to please God, the rest of the world wasn't getting any of that, okay? So he says, if anybody should know these things, you guys ought to know these things as Hebrews. You should be teaching others, which is exactly what they were supposed to be doing. They were supposed to be sharing it with the rest of the world, telling people about God, getting them to understand the things of God, and they were taking it all in for themselves. Okay? Like, have you guys ever, um, have you guys ever seen the, the commercials of the guy that says, I've got a book and I can show you how to... You know, make a million dollars. I can show you how to get whatever grants you need to get for your business. Um, I can't remember what the name of the book is, but it's one we've got the question marks all over it. Um, you know, I look at that and I say, you know, if that guy really does have the answers, then good on him that he would share them. Because a lot of people aren't like that. Oh, for a price, Oh, yeah, he's going to charge you for the book. No, no question about it, right? Uh, he has a motive, no, no doubt. But, man... You know, it's like, uh, I, I think one that, the, something that people use all the time is, man, if you had the cure for cancer, would you not share that? 
You, you wouldn't give that to people? You wouldn't freely give it? Like you would literally charge? Hey, I, I've, got, I, I've got the cure for cancer, but if you want it, it's going to cost you. What? No, we should just freely give that, right? Here's what God said. Freely you've been given, freely, or freely that it's been given to you, freely give. So that's why a lot of times, like my daughter, she says, Dad, all this stuff that you write out, and why don't you, why don't you put that in a book? Why don't you, you know, sell that and the, the 180 material that, that I've written? And why don't you sell it? I told her, I said, because it's not mine. It's just scripture. It's been freely given to me by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to freely give. I'm, I, this is something a little icky about it for me if I start charging. You, you know what I mean? So we charge ten bucks to cover to cover the printing and and the binding, and I don't get a dime of that. All that just goes straight straight back into the church. I don't I don't get a dime of that, and I don't want to get a dime of that. I've I've taken that material and, and get, it's been translated into three different languages, and it's being used in three different countries. I don't care. I mean, I'm glad. I, not, not that I don't care, but I don't care about the profit of it. Mm-hmm. Profit the kingdom. It's God's. It's not mine. Right? So anyway, he says, he says, if anybody should get it, you guys should get it. Um, verse uh, 13, he says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is, is for the mature, for those who have their power of discernment trained uh, by, by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Listen, that's what needs to happen with you guys. Because some of you guys have been in church a long time. If anybody should get it, if anybody should understand the walk of faith, if anybody, you guys ought to get that. You should understand that. Why? So that you can freely give that back out again. You ought to be teachers. And and I'll be honest with you, here in Reliant, one of the things that I want to do is I want to multiply myself I'll give you everything I've got, everything that I know, everything that God has shared with me about this book. I made a deal with him a long time ago that if he would teach me this book, I would teach it to others. If you ever, I'm telling you right now, if you ever really want to learn the Bible, find an outlet that you can teach it. Sunday school, small group ministry, whatever. And what will happen is, is that you then become a conduit by which God can teach the world his Bible. Instead of you saying, well, I just want that for me. I'm just going to take that for me. Uh, There's a whole lot of spiritually fat Christians who've been sitting on their laurels, not doing anything for the kingdom, and they just keep getting fatter and fatter and fatter. It's like, no, why don't you exercise, right? Isn't that what it says here? It says, he says, of discernment, training by constant practice. Right? That means you're going to do something with it. If you don't do something with it, you're going to lose it. And he says, to distinguish good and evil. Now, let's go on to verse number six, or or chapter six. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from, uh, from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now listen, those are great things. Man, when we talk about salvation, we talk about what Jesus did for us. But you know what? In the New Testament church, which is most of Christendom, the sad thing is, is that that's all you get. They never never teach you the rest of the Bible. They never talk about the Old Covenant 
And how Jesus fulfilled that or the types and the pictures that I'm telling you guys now, right? You need the full counsel of God. You need everything. But what happens is, is that we get focused on just that little, that little bit. And, and right here in Hebrews, he says, those are good things, but let's go on to maturity. Like when a baby is born and he has life in his lungs, you don't say, man, well done. You did it. You came out. Right? We're, we're excited about the birth, but God forbid it stopped there. Our mind immediately starts saying, how can I begin to train my child? And I'm telling you, from day one, you start training that child. You start teaching that child what they're going to need to eat on their own, to survive on their own. You, you know what I mean? And the same thing needs to happen is that as Christians, do not be satisfied with the fact that you've been born again. Praise God. That's the beginning, not the end. It's the beginning of salvation. And I think sometimes in Christendom, we count it as the end. Evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. And I say, amen, a hundred times. Let's evangelize. And when you birth new babies, by all means, let's disciple. Let's train. You have to do both. If we only birth new babies and we never disciple, we're not going to be birthing babies long. Right? So the same thing. Like what, it, what would happen if, if I do pour into you guys and, and get you up to speed and you guys become teachers of the word of God? How many people from this room will be saved because of your witness in the word of God? And I realize I'm preaching to you a little bit, but I'm telling you, I want to challenge you. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer of the word. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Walk in that wisdom so that other people can see that wisdom. Here's what he says. Now, remember, who's this written to? Hebrews. All right, keep that in mind. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, that's a hard passage. If you don't understand context, if you don't understand who this is written to, then you're going to think that you can lose your salvation. Because that's what it sounds like. Would you agree? Okay, the problem is, is that who are the enlightened ones here that he's talking about? It's the Hebrews. It's not Christians. Why were they enlightened? Because they had gotten all of the laws. They had gotten all the precepts. God had poured into them already. And, and, and chapter 5 told us, you guys should get this. But now you've had all that enlightenment and then you rejected the Savior when He came? He says, and then for you to be redeemed again, for you to... When, 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 you're, when, when you're rejecting the crucifixion that can save you, basically what he's telling them is there's no hope for you. You've missed it. You missed the Messiah. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Okay? So the, this is one of those major passages where people talk about there being a contradiction because they don't spend the time to get the context of what's being said. Who's being talked about? 
There are three different types of people in the scriptures. What are they? Who are they? Three different types of people. Jews, Gentiles, Gentiles. 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 and the church. That's it. Jews, everybody else, the Gentiles, and then the church, which is a conglomeration of the two of them, right? So he's talking specifically here to the Hebrews. So he goes on in verse number six, it says, then have fallen away uh, to restore them again to repentance since they, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their, to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. For the land that, that has uh, drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful, we can go on and on. I don't want to do that. Um, do this. Go over to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. I always thought that the, the people in Matthew 7 were the most surprised people in all the Bible, but I think they were really pretty surprised when they heard this. Yeah, because he's, he's basically telling them, you missed it. If you miss, see the whole book of Hebrews is, and you might want to write this down, like maybe at the beginning of the book, it's the superiority of Christ to the Old Testament laws. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. How is Christ superior to what the Hebrews had in the past? So we really have not gotten off topic when we're talking about dispensations. Okay. So we're over in Hebrews chapter 10. Alan, you go turn that air back on. You might even just hit the fans on. That might be enough. Um, All right, so we're in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, So look at verse number one. It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So what he's saying is, remember, the law was just to teach you, just to show you. It's just a type of what's to come, okay? But it wasn't the, re- it wasn't the reality. It's a, it, can, it, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any concessions for sin, of sins. So he's saying, if the priests in the Old Testament and the sacrifices that they did for you actually did take away your sins, there'd be no reason to come back. Right? Um, which is somewhat the same thing that we now preach about the cross is that the blood of Jesus Christ covers all sin, we don't, we don't come back on a weekly basis asking to be forgiven again. Do we? No, he covers, every, he covers all of it. Okay? So and it says it right here. In verse number four, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You need something a little stronger than that. Okay? Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said sacrifices and offerings... You have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you you have neither desired nor take pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offerings according to the law. Verse number nine. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
So where the, bull, the, where the blood of the bulls and goats couldn't get it done, Jesus says, I'm going to do something new. Look at verse number 10. This is important. It says, for, and, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. What's the next words? Once for all. How many times is Jesus going to die on the cross for you? It's done. How many times is Jesus going to sprinkle his blood on the mercy seat of God in heaven? Just once. If he comes back and has to do that again, listen to me closely. What you're saying is that the blood of Jesus is not good enough. You see how detrimental that is to the gospel, right? So he goes on here. Let's read it. In verse number 11, it says, And every priest standing daily in the, in the, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when, G, when Christ had offered for, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from, from that time until his enemies should be made uh, a, a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us uh, for after uh, saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on on their hearts and write them on their minds. So he's bringing that same scripture back again. And he's saying it's through the blood of Jesus that that covenant, the new covenant, the second covenant is now made. Does that make sense? Verse number 19. He says, therefore, anytime you see the word therefore, you need to go back and find out what it's there for. So we've been reading the context, right? And when you have the words wherefore, which is usually like a a King James kind of a phrase, usually in newer versions, it's always therefore, right? Um, But in the newer versions, when it says therefore, what he's saying is, is that we're about to sum it all up. We've been talking about all this stuff. Let's bring it to conclusion. That's what the word therefore means, right? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest uh, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. God says you can come boldly now. Not because you kept the law. We know that that's not... But Jesus kept the law and that sacrifice is sufficient for you. He goes on in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. What God has promised to you, he will do. He, is, he, he has and will continue to forgive you of all of your sin. Verse 24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not, not neglecting to meet together as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know something interesting, interesting to me in the church today? If you go back 30 years, 30 years in the church, which you guys can't, but I can't, right? <laughs> But if you go back 30 years in the church, there was Sunday school before church, church, Sunday night, 
some type of a, was that Sunday night? Trinity, yeah. So you, you had Sunday night, uh, some type of a Bible study. Then you had Wednesday night Bible study. Yeah. Then you had Thursday night visitation. Mm-hmm. Tuesday night. Or Tuesday night visitation. <laughs> there was some day we're going to go out and we're going to knock doors, right? Okay, so now we've gotten down to where we give God a couple of hours. The scripture right there specifically tells us, as you see the day approaching, don't be as some where you quit meeting together. How is it that we're going to learn if we don't meet together? And I've had people tell me, you can't run all those classes. People aren't going to come. And I sit back and I say, what's the more important thing? And, and there is no other way to do it. Like, I can't give you a tape that you can sleep on. And I use tape again, right? Uh, I can't give you a podcast that you can sleep on and, and somehow you catch it all. And, and you know what? I'm going to tell you this, guys, because some of you, some of you are, are real heavy on listening to preachers. I would say be careful with that. Preachers don't always get it right. You know, you need to be like the Berean church was where they heard the words of Paul and then they went back and they studied to see if what Paul said was actually true. And I will always say to you, go check it out. Go study it for yourself. There's never a time where I'm going to present something to you in the Word of God that I don't even want you to study. I got done preaching this morning and you know what I told the congregation? Do me a favor. Go back and study those verses again. Look at them for yourself. See if you see what I saw. Because it's pretty plain. Right? Um, But do your own study. Don't just always cheat off of somebody else. I... I am absolutely amazed. This goes even into the pastorate because you've got like sermon.com where if I wanted to, I could go to sermon.com right now and I could look up repentance and I could get a whole sermon. Illustrations, PowerPoint, the whole thing. I don't got to do nothing. I get the whole thing, right? How does that help me and my spirit to meditate on the things of God? I remember I was at a conference, this was years ago, and we were learning about discipleship. And, and this guy brought an awesome message on discipleship. Uh, it was out of Luke where it says, you know, how can you be my disciple? Or, or you, you cannot be my disciple. If I'm not number one, you know, and he went through that whole uh, Luke 14, 25 passage, you know, if you don't do this, you can't be my disciple. So we were all, the, you know, this was just a room full of pastors. We were at a pastor's conference. And when he got done with that, Immediately, people started running out to the back and they were signing up to, to, to get the recording. And I heard a guy at the recording table and he said, he said, man, I got to get that recording. And somebody said, why? And he said, well, because I want to preach it just like he preached it. And I thought to myself, you've got the scripture reference. Go study it. You know, go, go make it your own. Go make it a part of your own life. And then... You'll have something to give out. But he was just going to take it. And he was literally going to take every point just the way. Now, I've preached that passage a hundred times, but I never preached it exactly the way that that guy did. I preached it from my heart. Don't you know that that's the thing that's impressive? And that's something that, I, that, that people tell me all the time is that, man, Bill, you're so passionate about the things that you're saying. Let me tell you why. Because I've spent time. I'm not trying to figure out if this stuff is true. I am trying to give it to you so that you can figure it out, but I know it's true. 
So there's no doubt that I'm passionate about it. Anyway, uh, we got to go a little bit farther, all right? Verse 25, it says, Not neglecting to meet together in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more uh, as you see the day drawing near. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately. Okay, this is interesting, right? He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, this is another, this is another passage. Usually those individuals that do not believe in eternal security, they'll take you to two books. They'll take you to the book of Hebrews. What's the problem with that? It's written to the Hebrews. It's not written to us. Okay? The other book that they're going to take you to is the book of Acts. The book of Acts, is that the, the proper name for it is the Acts of the Apostles. Okay? The Apostles were also making a transition from the Jewish faith to a worldly faith or to a worldwide faith, right? So that's the book of Acts. It's the whole transition of when they have their final rejection in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 8 is when Saul slash Paul comes on the scene. By the time you get to Acts chapter 11, the first Gentile comes to Christ. His name is Cornelius, right? And then all of a sudden, Paul begins to go all throughout the Gentile world, and the gospel is now opened up to the Gentiles. It's a transitional book. But if you don't understand context, then, then you're going to have problems. So, now we already read at the beginning of this chapter when it said, how many times is Jesus going to die? He dies one time. He has died already. One time. It was sufficient. He's seated now at the right hand of the Father, right? It's over. It's done. Praise God. Glory to His name. And this says, if we, for, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a, but a fearful uh, uh, expectation of judgment and, fi- and, and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Let me tell you what he's saying. If you miss Jesus, you missed it. If you, miss the, if you miss the Savior, if you miss the, the ultimate sacrifice, the only thing left for you is judgment. Let me say it to you another way. Somebody's going to pay for your sin. It's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be you. Right? So that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, we have full assurance, we have full hope of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes back and he says, but if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There is no other thing. Like, you don't have to come back yearly. Remember the context. He's trying to get Hebrews to understand. We're moving from many sacrifices to one ultimate sacrifice. So don't think that you've got to come back. I always, you know, like uh, Assembly of God are one of those individuals that would say to you, if you, um, uh, you, you do need to believe in Jesus, but then you need to do your part, right? Um, you, you, you know, because you can walk away from the faith. What they will say is just as you can receive it, you can also give it back, okay? My question is, how can you be unborn, right? Because the Bible says you've been born again, so somehow you're going to have to get unborn, right? Um, and... And I was talking to an Assembly of God guy, and this is a friend of mine, he's a friend of mine today. Um, and we were working together at a radio shack, and we were um, arguing over this point, argument, 
not it wasn't a, a bad thing. We were just reasoning over the scriptures, and I just asked him. I said, "Hey, what's the word eternal mean?" And he got mad. And I said, "Listen, I'm not trying to cause a fight. I'm just asking you what the word eternal means." And it means no beginning and no end. I said, so if Jesus gives you eternal life, and yet then he takes it from you, how is it eternal? It's temporal at that point, based upon your actions. So it's either going to be, there's really only two religions in the world. Jesus will get you there alone, or you're going to get yourself there. Okay? I want you to turn to the book of Galatians. No, I'm reading that too. He says, if we, I mean, it's context again. If we, it's context. I'm, I'm reading New King James, and he says, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, didn't say we received Jesus. We just received the knowledge. There's a lot of people that have knowledge. Of the exactly. Exactly. And they had received the knowledge right. because they had been preaching. But he said, if you reject that, there's not, there's nothing, there's no other sacrifice. Right. I have a question. Mm-hmm. When it, I think it's in Hebrews either eleven, where it says, "For the one who has received the truth but but backs away." Like what? What is whoever is writing to the Hebrews? What, is, what do they mean by that? That's someone who is deliberately reject. Like deliberately like in our language, habitual sin, right? Someone so it's, you're talking about verse thirty-nine. Yeah. Where it of says, chapter ten, right? Yeah. yeah. We're not those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe don't draw back. Yeah. Well, the, the end of the verse says, I'll have no pleasure in them. Right. Right? So what is that like? Like what is, to me, the way I'm seeing it or hearing it or reading it is, what is, what is the writer saying? What he's, what he's trying to tell them is, is that if you start this walk of faith, mm-hmm. and you need to continue this walk of faith, because God is not pleased Whenever you start this and then you don't live it out. Uh, the same way I'm not pleased with my daughters if they don't live after the ways of Christ. They're still my daughters. You know what I mean? That, that, that's a blood transference that I don't care. They can d- denounce me all day long. But the fact is, any DNA test to tell you that they're my children. Yeah. Right? Now, I'll either take pleasure in my children or I'll be discouraged by them. And depending on their actions. But they're always my children. Right? It says draw back to perdition. I don't, I'm just going to look that word up. But it's, I don't, oh, that's, that's the New King James. Because I know my, yeah. my, my Bible says to fall away, to fall back away. Yeah. Um, some even say backsliding. backsliding. They'll use that word backsliding, you know, or, or to fall back. So right? we're repentant. I mean, so... You know, those who draw back to unrepentance and they're not sorry for what they're doing anymore. They're not, they, don't, they don't see sin as God sees sin. And yeah, God takes no pleasure in that. Right. As a matter of fact, you could even make a case over in 1 John chapter 5 where it says, there is a sin unto death. He says, I don't, I don't say that you should pray for that. Meaning that if your brother's caught in sin, you shouldn't pray God just kill him. Right? Right? Uh, but there is sin. There is a sin that leads to death. And what I really believe—this is my opinion—but what I really believe that passage is talking about is that if you live an unrepentant life as a Christian, God will take you out because it's better for His kingdom to take you out. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're unrepentant, which means that—and man, how many how many Christians do we have doing this? Where you know they're claiming Christianity, but yet they're living like the world. 
And I think that, I, I really think that that's what it means about the church going into apostasy is that we're not concerned with righteousness any longer. We're not concerned with, we're just going to live like the world. And we're all going to live together. And we're all going to hook up and it's all going to be fine. And, and God says, no, that's not fine. He's not pleased with those things, you, you know? And um, I really do, we're going to learn this in Ephesians chapter 5, but people go to hell for those things. Straight up. He like kills people for that. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying that that unrighteousness, that righteous, that righteous indignation that God has is very real. But see, we don't like to talk about hell. Oh, you know, it's not, you know, we can't talk about, you know, can't do that. How can you talk about a God of mercy and grace if there's no hell? If there's no, if, if there's no penalty? Merciful for what? Exactly. So I will rejoice all day long at my gracious God and the mercy that he has shown me through the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that I was worthy of death, knowing that, that he was going to kill me for my sin if I had not repented. I'm okay with both of those because I am saved. But oh man, if you just try to, you know, we just need to focus on the love. Listen, the love, the love is not near as, as dramatic if you take away the consequence. Okay? So look over at Galatians chapter uh, 2. In Galatians chapter 2. And my life verse is verse number 20. Now remember, I'm answering the question about the assembly of God where they say, you know, you need to accept Christ, but then you can walk away from it. Um, you have to continue in it, right? So here's what the Bible says in verse 20, verse number, uh, yeah, verse 20 of chapter 2. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that's my verse, people. Okay? Um, but then look at verse number 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So if I have to do something, if I have to do my part, if I have to keep the law, if I'm going to be put back under those restrictions of the law again, then there was no reason for Christ to come. I just need to keep the law. And what Paul is saying is that it's an either or. Either you're saved by grace or you're saved through the law. But you can't be saved by grace and the law. If, if there were any other way to me that would make God very cool, to, 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 to watch Jesus as only we got and go through what he went through to, for the redemption of mankind and there'd be another way, that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So it means somebody has pulled the wool over your eyes. Somebody has made you think improperly, right? He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betray, uh, uh, portrayed as uh, crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun it by the Spirit? Are you now being uh, perfected by the flesh? You know what he's saying? That doesn't make any sense. 
It's either fleshly or it's spiritual, but it can't be a fleshly spiritual thing. So didn't you call on Jesus out of faith? Didn't you come to the understanding that I need a Savior? And you called on His name and you received Him into your heart? Listen, you're not going to keep that salvation now through the flesh that you were saved from. So, two covenants. Old covenant, right? The law. The new covenant of grace. And they don't... One has taken over the other. Okay? So, and I know we're running out of time tonight. But just looking at this sheet. I'll go over this one next time. So when we talk about these dispensations, and I'm going to be honest with you guys, dispensationalism is becoming unpopular. Okay? Um, Dispensationalism is the way that you break up how a person has been saved throughout the Scriptures. Okay? So the other thing that you'll hear is covenant theology. So covenant theology really comes from a Calvinistic viewpoint, which basically will, covenant theology will, will basically say that we have taken over Israel. Israel is no longer uh, the, the main thing. Now we have gotten all the promises of Israel. Israel is no more. And I think that the Bible is very clear that God is not done with his people because that's exactly what it says. Okay? All right. So in these dispensations... There's a, I want you to so you see my handwriting. I don't know if you guys can read this or not. Let me just go over the top so you can know what that says. Um, innocence, conscience, human government, patriarchs, law, church, and Lord. So here's the question that you have to ask about the time period that, that, that you're reading about. Salvation is always about faith. Always. Okay? The question is, what did God say? And that's where you're going to get your different dispensations. What did God say to Adam? The command was, if you eat of that, don't, you can eat of every tree, but this one. You eat of this one, you can surely die. Right? So that was the command. That was the age of innocence. All he had to do was just not do it. Right? Okay, so then you get into conscience. And, and then you've got another question that's asked. And, and, um, and now as you lead the... It, when you look down the side, and I didn't write this, okay? So I don't want to t- necessarily take credit for this. This is what was taught to me at Kansas City Baptist Temple in Kansas City. But um, you have a lead steward, somebody who's in charge of that era. Okay? So that would be the sons of Adam for that, uh, that conscience. Um, there's a responsibility that's given to them. There's a failure. In Genesis chapter 6, you read about that failure where it says that their, that their minds were only evil continually. Their thoughts were only evil continually. Um, and God, the end of that is the flood where God says, I'm just going to kill them all, save eight people. And he saves eight people on a boat and everybody else perishes, right? Um, so you have the crisis, which is the destruction of the flood, the limits of the fall, uh, the fall to the flood. Okay, so here's what I was taught growing up, which is not biblical. The Old Testament people were looking forward to the cross. The New Testament people, which would be us, are looking back to the cross for salvation. Okay, 
The Bible specifically tells us, though, that they did not understand the suffering of Christ. The Israelites were not looking for a Savior to come and suffer. What they were looking for, although it says that in their prophets, right, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. The Bible is very specific to tell us that they expected him to come and to rule and to reign as king. This whole thing about suffering, the three days in the grave and the resurrection and, the, and this now this church age that we have, they didn't get any of that. They didn't understand any of that. I don't, I don't think they were, I mean, as you say that, I don't think they were looking, they were looking forward, but there were types and shadows all through the Old Testament that pointed them in that direction. I yes, no, no doubt about it. God was constantly trying to give them, and that's what I was showing you guys a minute. He was trying, constantly trying to get ready. There's going to be a lamb coming, you, you know. They were gonna... looking forward, but what happened, they didn't, they didn't know exactly. They were clueless as to what actually they were looking to. Yeah, they were not looking for the cross. They were looking for a king. They were looking for a king. Um, even the disciples, right? Whenever Jesus ascended, he, they said, well, is it at this time that you're going to establish your kingdom? Like, they were always looking for that kingdom. And so they didn't get that whole thing. The way that a person was saved in the, in the Old Testament, the way that you were an Old Testament saint is faith in God, which meant that you did your best to keep the commandments and you made the sacrifices necessary for sin. You, you obeyed. The word faith and obedience is the same word in the Greek, right? So you must obey. Like, okay, turn, turn back over to Hebrews. And I, I'm doing that on purpose to keep you guys in the book of Hebrews a little bit. Because this is one of the hardest books for people to understand. But when you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, he lays out some of these ways that he's spoken. And he, said, he talks about dispensations without saying it. But he says in verse number 1 of chapter 1, he says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, he is the uh, radiance of the glory of God and, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the, the universe by the, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has uh, inherited is more excellent than theirs. So here's what he's saying. God spoke in many ways. God said a lot of things. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. So in this dispensation, this age of grace, what God has said to us in this dispensation, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe in My Son. He is the ultimate sacrifice. Now, there's coming a time when this age of grace, which is this sheet here, I'll get to next week, where the age of grace is going to be over and there's going to be a new commandment that comes out and that commandment is you must endure to the end of the tribulation. And that's not going to be easy because you can't take the mark of the beast, which means you're not going to be able to buy or sell. Um, we're not going to be here, praise God, for all that. right? Because we're... I'm a premillennialist. We understand that we're going to be caught up to be with God. Everybody else is going to have that choice, but, but it changes. It's not so easy just to bow your head, pray your prayer, and receive Jesus into your heart. That's not going to be the thing. It's going to be now you have to endure to the end of this time of tribulation where they're literally cutting people's heads off 
And we're seeing some of those kind of things uh, approaching, you, you know. I really do believe that the stuff that we see, the things that are happening over Egypt where they line up people on the seashore and cut their heads off, listen, all that stuff is just getting us numb to the fact that this is what's going to happen in the tribulation. We're getting to that point. Jesus is coming very soon. And the, and the people that are left here, they can, have, they, they can have an opportunity. We'll go over that some other time. But, but, but if you've not heard of the gospel, then you're going to have an opportunity. But your opportunity is, don't take the mark. You pray all you want, but if you take that mark, you're going to be damned with the beast. It changes. All I'm really trying to get you guys to understand is there's different dispensations. The, the question of salvation is always the same. It's always faith in the Word of God. The question is, what did God say? Okay? That makes sense? Clear as mud? <laughs> Remember, I'm not, all I'm trying to do is get you started. You're going to have to study. Um, so, um, I hope this was profitable for you guys tonight. So, the book of Hebrews is one that people really struggle over. But I feel like that I need to give you a handle on that because that's where a lot of misdirection and bad doctrine comes from because they don't take the very first rule of context. Cool? All right, let me pray for you guys. Father, we want to...